You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Well, hello and welcome to TFM's Books and Comic Show Literary Treks, and I'm just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me, as he is every single time, is the one and only, the lovely bearded Casey Pettit. I love the beard, Casey. It's looking really good. It's nice and thick now. It's it's coming in nice, <laughs> although that means it's it's time to trim. <laughs> I noticed yes, you're yes, more clean yes. shaven than the last time I saw you. Uh, yeah, you know, um, I did the whole no shave November, and so then it was. I just felt like it was time to like kind of start over. And I don't know. It was like I'm going back to Dallas for Christmas. Nobody needs to know this, but anyway. <laughs> uh, and I was like, well, you know, I'll look nice for people there. So whatever. But we are so excited because. We've got two more shows for you this year. We've got this episode, and then we are going to be talking to David Mack about his latest book that, as we're recording, just dropped today, Harm's Way. So if you haven't picked it up, you'll want to pick it up because we're going to be interviewing him soon, and that'll be coming out even before the end of the year. So uh, jam-packed into the year here, but if you would like to help us out, uh, you know what? Go over to patreon.com slash trekfm, become a patron just like Casey Pettit or Greg Rosier, who are helping support the network here through Patreon. We really appreciate their support. And uh, we've got some special things coming up there. I know through the 602 Club, we're going to be doing some bonuses. And uh, maybe we'll get some of that stuff going as well for literary treks. You just never know. But you'll only be able to get that type of content through Patreon. Plus, it keeps all the episodes coming to you each and every week that you get here through TFM. You can also find us on social media at TrekFM on Twitter or at TrekFM on Instagram. Of course, we're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. If you would like to talk to listeners from all over the world in our listeners-only discussion group, you can type Babel into the search field on Facebook and find the Babel Conference, and then you would be able to, again, join listeners from all over the world talking about our different episodes and everything going on. You can also find us online at track.fm, and you can find all the shows we're doing. And last but not least, you can even send us an email over there at the contact section. So, Casey, uh, before we talk about Enterprise, the first adventure, uh, we do have some comics, which I'm super excited about this. Um, we've got Lower Decks 3 and Star Trek 2. Not that Star not Trek that 2. One. The other, 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 other Star Trek 2, you know, uh, because I'm pretty sure there have been number twos in Star Trek comics before. So anyway, uh, Lower Decks 3, we actually end up uh, wrapping up this trilogy uh, here. And 
How did you feel like it, it ended up wrapping up uh, this story? And did you feel like this was uh, as strong an entry as the previous entries that we've gotten so far? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, it's it's another strong entry. I would say it's maybe not my favorite, but it does wrap up the story nicely. I feel like the authors and the artists and everybody kind of found their groove uh, by the end of it. Um, you know, it's it just continues the story from the previous one. You get little tastes of the, I don't know, upper decks, the, the command crew and Mm -hmm. their mission, but it really still focuses on the lower decks, which is what we're all here to see. And, you know, it, it really doesn't disappoint. It continues the story nicely and wraps it up nicely and, you know, leaves some potential breadcrumbs for the future. Yeah, I I think the best way that I could put this is that it ends in the most lower decks fashion possible. And I think that just continues everything that we've said beforehand. And so, like you mentioned, whether or not this was my favorite issue of this, this, uh, you know, three part arc here is neither here nor there. I, I think what this does is it just continues to feel exactly like the show does, which is really important in this. Um, One of the things I I did want to ask you, because I was thinking about this as I was reading this issue, and it just made me wonder, I I think that this does as good a job as possible of making it feel like Lower Decks. And at the same time, I was thinking to myself, would I rather just these again been episodes that we had gotten in a season rather than this and of course you know maybe we would never get these stories besides that so uh you know but i i just i kept thinking to myself i just feel like this is as close as you can get to lower decks but i almost still wish that they had been episodes totally (laughs) it's i mean the the way that this is written I mean, I think we've said it since issue one, like it felt like watching an episode and this would have actually been kind of a fun continuing arc to have this Dracula holodeck character kind of like Moriarty or, you know, any of the other sentient holograms, I guess, that we know. It'd be fun to see him pop up throughout the show. And um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. It's just, I think that's a testament to how well they did these comics and it really just kind of leaves me wanting more it leaves me wanting more of the show but i'll take more com uh more of the comic books instead if that's what we're gonna get for now yeah i think i think that's a good way to put it in that you know a lot of this does feel so much like the show and i think it's it's one of those things where uh it it again it's the highest compliment that i can pay them the fact that, you know, these comics, what you want is it for it to feel like whatever Star Trek they're trying to tell. And which is, you know, obviously the most important thing as well when, you know, you're doing any type of uh, expanded medium for you know, Star Trek or Star Wars or any of these franchises. You just you want it to feel that way. And I think. In in all honesty, my question is really the biggest compliment I could give the comic, which is, God, this was so good. It could have just it could have just been, uh, you know, 
episodes uh, that we had gotten. And so the fact that I'm even thinking that, I think, speaks to the quality that we got here in the sense of mirroring and mimicking and being just like what we watch on our screens during a season of the show. Yeah, it's it's not so ridiculous that you just write it off, but it's it's just ridiculous enough to be lower decks and you know wanting to see that. And and these comics are so full of the same uh kind of Star Trek in jokes and tropes that we love about lower decks and looking for all these easter eggs and um uh, you know even at at the end of the comics they they'll point out a few of them like in this one they they mention different uh historical characters i think that have been on the holodeck and i don't know i you know you could go through this just like the show like with a fine tooth comb and look for all of the little uh the little easter eggs you know like i think uh Reg Barkley, if I remember, I think it's in the nth degree um, where he hooks himself up in the holodeck with the same kind of thing that Dracula does here. I mean, it's just and, and it flows so well. So, yeah, I think uh, I, I hope they continue doing more of these. I hope it's not just a, this little trilogy that we got here. I, they've done well enough. The proof of concept is there. Let's let's get more of these. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you. And so uh, I think all in all, to me, this entire arc is something that I would recommend. These first three uh, issues would definitely be worth picking up. And I, I think this one is so incumbent on the first two because you have to have read them to really get what's going on in the story. But I'd just rate the the whole thing overall a good four and a half out of five, maybe even five stars, just because it feels so much like what we get with Lower Decks. Yep, I'd be right there with you, four and a half, five. It's, there's not a lot wrong that I can find with these ones. Yeah, which is great, uh, which leads us into, we're, we're back with Star Trek Two, our kind of Avengers-style comic here with Captain Sisko and his crew on the Theseus, and they are traveling to Kronos after the destruction of the Crystalline Entities, and goodness, Casey, does this not, this whole issue just kind of opens up some things. One, there's some big revelations about what's going on in the Klingon Empire, but then there's this whole group of godlike beings we've never heard of that live within the boundaries of the Klingon Empire that are actually kind of the impetus for this story in ways we didn't know until this issue. And so I'm being somewhat... You know, not trying to give it all away because there's some great stuff in here. But, oh, my gosh, I, I, I'm i loving this It's so far. I mean, this is just great. You know, I, I, this feels like almost like comic book Star Trek storytelling. You know, like when I think of like big comic book character art type things. Yeah, I think you I, I like your analogy to the avengers i mean that really is what this is like and i feel like every uh, every issue we're going to get more and more of the characters you know that we get wharf in this one since we're going to chronos um and even uh a slightly different Kalis than we're used to seeing on you know deep space nine 
or no, was that on? Well, I guess he was on Deep Space Nine and Next Gen or whenever it was he came back. Anyway, like it's it's just yeah, it's jam packed full of stuff, and it I liked even that it kind of called back to the uh, Klingon one shot that we got not too far back with the. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of trifoil yes, bridge over the canyons where the battle happened and they referenced that battle that we saw in that comic so that was actually a lot of fun too seeing them tie these together um you know we see tom paris we see we see like the way they even add some kind of there, there's a little bit of background on the klingons at one point it's just kind of a um, they call it a memory alpha diplomatic briefing, and it just kind of describes the Klingon Empire. So if like you're new to Star Trek or you're new to the comics or you just need a little refresher, it, it gives that to you in just a real quick page to tell you kind of who some of these characters are that we're seeing or that we're referencing. And, you know, with a with kind of a reboot, you know, f- that's that's kind of what we're doing. We're trying to reintroduce people to Star Trek. And so getting these little vignettes of information i think is really nice and helpful for the the comic book reader that maybe isn't as familiar with some of this stuff yeah and i mean you just your mention of kalis there i was thinking how interesting it is and much like deep space nine is where you you take something and you just kind of move it forward and you know the kalis we get here is somebody who has kind of found his place and his power in the Klingon Empire and has been flexing it. And again, I think it's it's much in the same way that Deep Space Nine would use things that TNG had set up and and then move them forward. And so, you know, to me, I, I think this comic is just doing such a great job in that. And I really am. I'm I'm blown away by how much I'm enjoying the comic. And just how interesting I'm finding the storytelling in the first place. Um, you know, it seems like almost a combination between Deep Space Nine and the storytelling we're getting in like Picard. That kind of feels like the it's like they if, if they had a baby, you'd have this <laughs> this season, this series. And I'm I mean, it's one of the things I'm actually looking forward to the most when it comes to Star Trek to trying to figure out where this is going, because to me, this is two issues in and I'm really hooked by what we're going to do. Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially when we're using so many of the characters that we love and, I, you know, I comic books are even less beholden, I feel like, to canon sometimes than than even the novels are. But I do wonder, since this is kind of in that period between start or the end of Deep Space Nine and the beginning of Star Trek Picard, there's a lot of years there. And so I kind of wonder at some point, are they going to kind of light it up a little bit? Um, especially because we don't know what we're going to see on season three of Picard. And so, you know, I, I doubt Worf would reference in that show his <laughs> exploits here in these comics and what will probably eventually lead to the, to the defiant series of comics. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated to see where they go with this. I like that. They've already got the spinoff planned with Worf on the defiant and just, uh, yeah, looking to see where this little universe of Star Trek goes. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. I I just I honestly can't wait to see where this goes. And so, well, 
as we wrap that up, Casey, I'm so excited that we're heading off into our very first adventure. So we're going on an adventure. So, Casey, this is, I would say, a sprawling book. There's a lot to this story. and That's a good way to put in it. In that, yeah, I, the only way I could think to really break it down was is to kind of talk in like character arcs Uh, but before that kind of setting everything up with what this first mission of the enterprise is which the beginning of the book is kirk recovering uh from his experience on his very first ship the linda sutherland which had been a part of a battle uh his first officer gary mitchell's been badly injured and because of his actions there, he's being handed the Enterprise from Pike, who is being promoted to Commodore. And it seems to... I think the interesting thing about the, the first mission that they get is that Kirk is obviously expecting to be able to boldly go. And instead of being a mission to boldly go... Uh, they're being given a mission to boldly babysit uh, a group of vaudeville performers and basically going on a, uh, a, a Bob Hope USO tours yes. through star bases <laughs> on the edge of the neutral zone with, with uh, the Klingon Empire. And so it's absolutely not the mission that Kirk had in mind. <laughs> I don't think it's the mission that we had in mind getting into the book. Have had you read this before? I've never read this before, okay. so everything in this was a surprise to me. Yeah. <laughs> Especially the mission that they choose to go on. It was it was an odd choice to be sure, I guess. Um you know, the admiral at the beginning was adamant that this was such an important yeah, USO tour for them to go on. I mean, it was almost kind of a proving ground for Kirk, but he kind of already felt like he had done that. Um, and not to get too far ahead, but I just don't feel like the ending of the story paid off as much for the Admiral's insistence that this was such an important mission. Um, since as we get into talking about it, we'll find out they never actually ever made it to the first starbase they were headed to. Like they, they end up on a different adventure. So, you know, it's it was an interesting way to start the book, um, mm-hmm. and especially given the admiral was like a family friend, you'd think he would have maybe shown some favoritism and given Kirk kind of a better deal. Um, you know, I'm kind of glad, though, that they didn't just dive right into some kind of five-year mission or anything like that. It was, you know, because we have a long way to go, or at least some way to go between this mission and uh, where no man has gone before. So, right, you know, it, it was an interesting choice. What's most interesting about the book, and you were kind of... Almost, I, I feel like dancing around it, so I, I'm just going to go ahead and say how I feel about this in the sense that the first mission that they're given by the Admiral here, and I don't necessarily know how that mission was to help 
Kirk and his crew. But the mission they accidentally end up, yes. 100% kind of goes with what the Admiral, I think, wanted to have happen. But I don't understand how that would have happened just being on, you know, this USO tour. Yeah. Like, and so it accidentally works out in the Admiral's favor in, I think, gelling this crew the way that he wants that to be able to happen and for Kirk to be, you know, to be able to get his feet wet again. But yeah, I just, it, it seems like a strange first mission to send Kirk and the Enterprise on in the first place especially when the Admiral has no idea that what is going to happen is actually going to happen. So, yeah, it's a little weird. Yeah. What, you know, one of the things that, that these books can do is, is a great job of giving us an understanding of the characters in a way that we haven't before. And, of course, you know, here, this is seeing Kirk at a time we've never seen him, which is right as he's getting promoted to the Enterprise. And, you know, he's the hero of this battle. He's been in recovery, though, uh, because he was severely injured. Uh, during that time, he's m- met Carol Marcus, and they've fallen in love because she's actually one of the people who had helped create the biomimetic gel, basically, that they use to... Uh, help repair his injuries and they've already realized their relationship probably isn't going anywhere because she's not gonna ask Kirk to stay uh, and he can't really ask her to go and so yeah there's a there's a lot that they do with the character of Kirk in this book which I think is really interesting and I feel like in a lot of ways you know, any of the minor, I guess, issues with his character storyline, I can chalk up to the fact that this is a really super young Kirk, and so he's not fully formed yet. So I was interested in his, in in what McIntyre is doing with the character here and trying to kind of set that foundation where you can, you know, peek through the cracks and be able to see the Kirk who will be. Yeah, and what's interesting is the book came out in 1986, so it's, um, I guess it would have come out right around the same time as Star Trek IV, um, and so we, by the time this book was written, there was a lot of history of Kirk, there was a lot of history of all of the characters, you know, we'd been through at least three, maybe four movies by the time this book came out, and so it was really interesting to kind of with that in mind, read about this much younger character, seeing him, yeah, with a much younger Carol Marcus, seeing what they were like towards the end of their relationship, that they really were in love. And, um, you know, his friendship with Gary Mitchell, which really, I, I thought it was actually kind of a shame that we didn't get much of that. I know there's like another trilogy of books that I think that they're both in together, but I almost would have liked to see Gary Mitchell there just to see how they interacted. Mm-hmm. But I, I suppose it, it also did the story service by not having him there since we never really got hardly any screen time with Gary Mitchell. It was really the other characters that 
we wanted to see how he kind of met and got along with. And, and Bones is really the only one, I think, that we find out that he actually knew before coming to the Enterprise. So um, that that was actually kind of an interesting dynamic and kind of nice to see that he wasn't going into this, like, total group of strangers. He at least had one person on his crew at this point that he knew. But seeing his his command style, especially compared to Captain Pike, which all of the current crew are comparing him to, because that's their most recent captain, and he's so different, and he gets called out on it a lot by the crew, by the visitors, kind of by everybody on kind of how brash and naive he's being and it's it's really interesting to kind of even just through this one story watch him grow in his command style but also gain the trust of his crew his new crew you know it's really interesting you say that because i think one of the parts of of what we see here with kirk and the way in which we kind of see him grow is that he i i think he starts off with a chip on his shoulder and the chip is the fact that he feels like he's got the cojones to be able to do this job and yet he also isn't necessarily trusting himself completely yet in the way that he will in the future the other part of that is he's also been through a a big trauma and he's working through that trauma and i think that's leading him to be harder on himself and everybody else around him because he's basically and i would say he's overcompensating yeah uh for uh his own feelings and to me that's actually really interesting and and i think that's something that gets worked through throughout the book, like you were talking about, which is really interesting. And a part of him dealing with this new command, and it, I think you're 100% right in the fact that it doesn't help that, you know, all of these people have absolutely been with somebody who is a very distinguished and a reputable captain like Pike, who had really established himself, obviously had been captain for quite a long time. Many of them have worked with him for years. And this new kid on the block comes in. He's literally the new kid on the block. And he's only 29. Yeah, He's the youngest person to be given the command of a starship of this magnitude. And so... That leads to all sorts of things that kind of go wrong in the sense that he has clashes with a lot of people, Uhura, Spock, and specifically Scotty, too. Yeah. Who, um, you know, they, they almost, they don't trade blows, but it, 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 they trade verbal blows. And he basically tells Scotty, hey, you just need to transfer to somewhere else. And they work it out, of course, by the end of the book, but, I, I think one of the things that McIntyre does very well here is that she doesn't make it easy for them to all come together. Like you said, McCoy is the only one who's his friend. You know, it feels very much like in that sense, you can actually see where they pulled for the Kelvin verse 
Yes. They pulled from this story, I think. Uh, and, and part of that is that Kirk is this brash young guy that nobody looks at as being anything other than that. But McCoy knows who he is and McCoy knows what he's capable of. McCoy believes in him, trusts him, and they work well together. And so he's basically the only friend he has on this ship uh, until the end of the book where a lot of the crew has been able to f- to come together and, you know, you see Kirk, Spock, and McCoy kind of form that triumvirate by the end of the book. But you also see characters like Scotty and Uhura, you know, um, become comfortable with them. And so, yeah, I think um, the, the the only thing that doesn't really sit right with me is the way in which Kirk, you know, he just had this relationship with Carol Marcus. So it seemed very early for him to have like any kind of feelings for anybody else. And that kind of annoyed me a little bit in the book. But, you know, I, I mean, otherwise, that was a pretty minor annoyance. Yeah, they kind of relied, or not relied, but they kind of uh, dive, dove into his pr- promiscuity a little bit. I, I mean, Alleged promiscuity. Alleged, yes. yes. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, the way he talks in the book, it's like he's actually falling in love with Lindy and then gets jealous when she goes somewhere else. And it's like, you just met her. And and I mean, I feel like that's just not only did you just meet her, but you just got out of a relationship with somebody that you were in love with. At least you said you were in love with. So, bro, come on. (laughs) And that we know. They were close enough where they're going to, unbeknownst to him, have a kid together. So, yeah, there's, right. th- yeah, that part I didn't care as much for. I felt like that that was a little bit forced, but I did like his, because, you know, you, you said he kind of comes in with a chip on his shoulder, and it, and it really did feel like, you know, he was, he was almost overcompensating for his, um, well, just youth, and it and it's pointed out to him so many times at how young he is, and he gets to the point where he's like, "I'm really tired of hearing how young I am. I know how young I am, and in trying to prove that he's earned his spot mm-hmm. as captain, yeah. he's he's um he's being very decisive, um." But it's so different from what the other crew or what the rest of the crew had with Captain Pike that, you know, Scotty is the prime example of someone who's just going to call him out every single time. Right. And on the one hand, you can kind of understand where Scotty's coming from because they, I mean, this is a very quick change for everybody. But being in a quasi military organization like this, you'd think change of command happens quite a bit and this wouldn't be the first time that they're serving under a new captain so in some ways you know i kept wanting to tell scotty you know what lay off just you know i was kind of getting frustrated with kirk like can you please just obey one order without question you know and um and in the end you know kirk is essentially kind of proved right in some of his orders, like telling Scotty, don't fire your weapons, don't fight if you have to retreat. And, you know, Scotty followed that order and everything turned out well. So, you know, it was just, um, 
it was kind of frustrating how Scotty acted with him. And I, I liked a lot more the, the relationship with Kirk and Spock and how that was starting because it was less contentious. It was more that Kirk didn't like Spock mostly because he didn't choose Spock. He wanted Gary Mitchell to be his number one, his first officer, but the Admiral selected Spock for that position. And so it wasn't really anything personal. I think that Kirk, you know, had issues with, with Spock. It was, it was really just that he wanted his friend there. And by the end of the book, I really liked that realization that Kirk has that the Admiral kind of had told him about, or somebody else had told him about was Gary Mitchell and Kirk are too similar to be the top two officers on a right, ship. And right. he needs somebody yeah. like Spock that can, you know, be the id to his ego or, you know, or the super yes. ego yeah. to his ego. Yeah. <laughs> so yep. um, that I feel like, the thread of that relationship through this book, I think, was very well done. Mm -hmm. No, I, I definitely agree with you. I think, you know, with Spock as a character, uh, I think the interesting thing about him is we're seeing Spock in that time period, you know, from the cage and um, between that and what we get and where No Man Has Gone before. And there's this Spock that is still being formed, right? He He's still very raw and... His ultra literal nature is coming out in the extreme in this type of book, and I think that that's what really makes sense actually um for the character here and you know there are some things I think that are a a little bit interesting right in the sense that they it, it feels it it feels a a little bit strange or new or whatever but to me it just all made sense because this is a spock who really is the yeah the, the way spock changes from the first pilot yeah. of you know the cage and then the way they portray him again in uh the second is different and so i think they did a great job uh with spock here and you know, this is also a time period, like you, you mentioned when this book is written. It's still very early in what we know about Spock, you know, and who he is. I mean, we've had the original series and four movies at that point. And, you know, what we think of as the character Spock, I think, is still to be even more informed by books to come, honestly. And, and, uh, you know, all the way through, uh, you know, Star Trek six and then beyond when he's on, uh, the TNG. And so there's still so much more of this character and even Vulcans themselves. Uh, and so I think she actually does a pretty decent job here with Spock and his, his, again, he's just so literal, like he's like literal Larry, everything he just <laughs> takes literally and like with Spock, you could literally say literally, literally all the time because <laughs> that's literally. how he takes it all, right? And, but <laughs> I just, I think that's something to which 
you know, he even struggles with, and you're talking about a little bit about that relationship with with Kirk because you know Kirk goes on intuition. It's it it's it's that informed intuition that we see Kirk go with all the time, right? It's like he's pulling all the pieces together in his head, and then he has a gut feeling about something to do, which not everybody else can completely see because it's not always all logical, right? And and Spock's struggling with that, and so do a lot of people on this ship because I think we get from the book is that Pike was much more logical uh, and kind of literal himself in a lot of ways. Uh, and so, yeah, I thought, I thought she did a pretty good job with Spock. It, you know, I always have to take into account exactly what you said when this type of book is coming out and what we knew about Spock then. And, and to me, when you're writing this early, again, it covers a multitude of things that might seem somewhat incongruous later on just because this is the formation of these characters yeah it's really interesting because yeah with with as much as the author knew when she was writing this that she had to actually go back and like unwind a lot of the knowledge that the reader would have had at the time in order to place this story when it was placed and so you know, the first time we see Kirk and Spock together, they're playing three-dimensional chess in Where No Man Has Gone Before, and they're kind of acting like friends, like they would ser- serve together for a while. Um, you know, but in the book, we, you know, Kirk doesn't know anything about Spock. And in fact, he doesn't know much about Vulcans at all. Like, he doesn't know right. what a mind meld is. He doesn't, you know, they're kind of learning a little bit about the neck pinch, Um and and yeah, I loved I, I really enjoyed the part where Kirk encounters Spock playing three dimensional chess by himself against himself and and Kirk essentially challenges him, you know, to a full game together, and so we kinda get to see or at least hear about their first game of three dimensional chess together, which was really fun and I think was one of the ways that Kirk was able to kind of bond with Spock to kind of say like, I'm not just some illogical human. I have, you know, and I think it, it also kind of goes back to that chip on his shoulder a little bit. Like I've got something to prove, but it it was almost a way for Kirk to extend kind of an olive branch early on to Spock to say, we've got some similar interests. You can trust me. I know what I'm doing. I'm strategic. I, you know, and you can trust me. And I think that was one of the things that that three dimensional chess game, kind of showed the characters for each mm-hmm. other. Well, I think it does a great job of showing Spock that Kirk has his own type of intellect. It's yeah. different than Spock's, right? But he is he is an intellectual. He is thinking about things. He has strategy. You know, there is a, a, a rhyme and reason to his quote-unquote crazy that everybody else thinks they're seeing, you know? And so I think that's really important. And... You know, the other part about this, too, is that we immediately kind of fall in with Kirk and McCoy bickering back and forth, which, you know, if there's anything in this book that just kind of feels right on target right away is those two falling into their what's going to become a very classic pattern. And, of course, them being the different voices that Kirk is listening to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's something that I thought felt really natural in the book. Uh, to have happen and and to me really worked well so you know again i really liked that now a a character i had no idea that we we're going to find out anything about in this book and yet they spent 
quite a lot of time building into was Janice Rand. And much of her story felt like it could come straight out of Star Trek Picard. Yeah. And the universe that we see there, because she comes from this kind of backwater planet um, where uh, her and her siblings had to escape from, you know, their slavery. I mean, again, this just sounds like straight up Star Trek Picard, you know, uh, things that we had kind of seen there. And, you know, she's been mistreated. She's actually lied about her age to get into Starfleet. She's actually only 16 and so, uh, even though because of time dilation travel, she's actually quote unquote older, even though she's really not. So yeah, relativity in that. <laughs> um, and uh, McIntyre actually spends quite a bit of time building into who this character is to even give her an arc from going to be this like ultra shy, somebody who feels like she has an absolutely no power even over herself to being somebody empowered to become the character that we'll see later on in the series. Yeah. I, this was one of those pleasant surprises in this book. It, it, when we first see Rand, it's like, okay, there's another character that we know, but the amount of time that we get with her and learning about her, uh, especially with her conversations with Uhura, um, I don't know. She's not a character that we really got. Like we got hardly anything of her on the show. And so to see her here as a very young officer, um, she's brand new. She's just been promoted to Kirk's yeoman. Kirk has never even had a yeoman before. So he doesn't even know that dynamic. Right. And, (laughs) you know, they get off kind of on the wrong foot together, partly because she's so, she's so shy, but, um, She's got like no confidence in herself, and Kirk is just tired and grouchy, you know, when she shows up, and he doesn't mean to, and you know, he apologizes to her and everything. But, but I like getting some backstory for her, especially like you said with the the kind of all the relativity stuff, you know, because they had to travel at you know almost the speed of light. So, like over the course of three objective years it was only a few subjective hours for her so you know her escape from you know what what she had grown up in is to go into starfleet which i think was actually kind of i I guess it's kind of analogous to you know people who join the military who feel like that's Mm -hmm. their only option and kind of a safe place to go and so yeah it's cool to see that she found well, that she found Starfleet, and by the end of the book, she's going to admit about her age, and you know, we'll see on the show that she's still there, so we know that she's not getting kicked out or anything. But um, just to see, you know, because she she can be pretty tough on the show, and so we kind of get to see a little bit of how that's born here in this book, which I I just really enjoyed her storyline overall. Well, and what I do think it does is that it shows how much formation is still to happen in the Federation. And there's a lot that's, I mean, they're still kind of on a monetary system here. And, you know, uh, the the Federation still has a long way to go. And that's another thing. And I think, you know, you could read this book and be frustrated, but I think it actually does a great job in just kind of like Enterprise, giving you some of them unexpected so that, 
you have somewhere to go. And I think, you know, with, with Rand and her story, that's really interesting. Now, the, the other side of Rand's story is there's a character that, you know, it's kind of a little turd to her, Roswind, and I felt like there was way too much time spent on her at yes. all. Um, you know, once we were done with that part of the story, I was ready to be done, and they kept kind of returning to her. And if, they, if I had been an editor here on that book, this book, I would have cut it out because it's unnecessary and I just don't care. And it doesn't go anywhere, right? You know, the, it doesn't resolve in any way that, that made it make sense that I spent any more time with that character than her immediate connection with the character of Rand. Uh, and so that's definitely, I would say, one of my biggest criticisms of the book is there there are other places where some of that kind of stuff happens and it just, you know. Um. Yeah, this book could have used some editing. <laughs> yeah, it it was definitely clunky in parts, especially when it was changing from scene to scene or whose point of view we were reading from. Um, but the Roswind story was the most egregious because every time it came up, I, I mean, I'm talking like every time it came up, I had to stop and think, who is this person and. Like, have we heard? Oh, yeah, that's right. It's it's yeah. her former roommate. Okay. And it was just such a long, kind of a long con with this whole extra or new roommate that's just this green slime that's, you know, sits in the sonic shower with and, and the payoff. In hindsight, I feel like I should have seen it coming, but it, it just was spread out so long over the book that, you know, by the time it happened, I was like, oh, okay. And on yep. to the next scene. <laughs> yep. No, I, I completely agree with you. You know, with Rand, I think it, it was really nice to be able to get um, more of a hurrah here. And especially the fact that, you know, she served under Captain Pike. She comes in, you know, a little bit more seasoned in that way. And we also see the fact that, you know, she is a linguist. And, you know, so part of this story is her becoming enamored with this language, which she realizes she's actually never going to be able to totally understand. And the way that that impacts her, which I thought was great, because, you know, so much of Star Trek kind of forgets that that's Aurora's job is to be a linguist. And I thought they actually did a really good job. So, um, you know, I, I really, you know, uh, appreciate that. And I thought it was really nice for the character. And again, it, it just, it built more into, you know, who that character is and even just why, you know, she would kind of feel a little bit contentious towards Kirk at the beginning as well. So, yeah, I, I don't think I could add much to that. I, I'm, I'm glad she was there and I'm glad she was given as much as she was because she can often be overlooked Hey, you know, I'm, I'm glad we didn't, we, we barely spent time with Chekhov and that was just fine. And I, I, I would have been upset if we'd have gotten a lot of time with Chekhov and very little with Uhura because she does add a lot yeah. to the story here and, and her character and her singing and everything. Is Chekhov even supposed to be there at this point? Well, I mean, you know, you could say that like, cause, cause he was filling in for <laughs> Sulu, I think from time to time on the bridge. And so that's why we saw mm -hmm. so little of him because I think he spent most of his time on the lower decks. So, yeah, that's how I think of it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, this we we mentioned that there's a there's a big twist in the story in the sense that we don't actually do what the mission was. We get sidetracked. 
by this massive world ship appearing on the edge of Federation and Klingon space and introducing us to an alien species that is one of the most unique and interesting in the sense that they are completely alien to us. And part of that is that they are an alien species who have lived for an extended period of time. Um, and they are so old compared to our civilization that we appear basically like children to them and, and their technology basically feels like magic compared to ours. And I thought that this was a, a good part of the story because again, just by them being so strange by our reckoning, I mean, those are the type of things that you can do in a book that are so much more difficult in like a show. Mm -hmm. So I thought this was a great uh, way to really challenge the crew of the Enterprise and, of course, Kirk um, with this really difficult situation where a wrong move could start a war between the Klingon Empire and the Federation. Yeah, I totally agree. This was such a great way to this was really the perfect way for Kirk to prove himself as a captain, but also for the crew to come together and to learn so much about each other. And, you know, like these, these aliens would have been so interesting to see on screen. Um, I, I think it's something we'd probably see. We could probably see more today on today's Star Trek shows, but yeah, to be able to use the the medium of a novel to really kind of flush out these aliens, and I felt like they were very well described. The the their um, not so much history, but their culture as far as their singing and having to learn the language, and then um, you know just the way they interact with each other. They they've evolved past needing names for each other. And, you know, to, to find out that they're so long lived and they've been around so long. And, and we've seen that in Star Trek before, like with aliens that have evolved and they're like, we'll come to you. We'll, we'll come back and meet you again in a few more millennia when you guys have grown up a little bit. And that's, that's how these ones felt, especially towards the end when they've, when the crew has become so close to the aliens that they, they know that there's so much that they could learn from them. And I think they've realized that they've learned a lot about each other just by being around them. And I think that they're the, the interactions that they'd had with these aliens really was well-written and kind of laid out as far as they didn't just immediately start speaking standard. Like the aliens had to learn that somehow. And, that was through a mind meld. And, you know, we kind of now learn how Spock is prone to kind of going out on his own. And, you know, we, this is exactly what he does in Star Trek, the motion picture. Spock just goes out to mind meld with feature. That's exactly what he did here. Um, and seeing those little glimpses of how the characters kind of will act in the future, but like kind of them getting to see 
I don't know how each other works, I guess, throughout all this. It was just a really great way to have everyone come together. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree with you more. I think it was a a very good part of the story and it really ended up being a benefit, especially in allowing this crew to be able to find a way to come together and become more of the crew that we expect. And so I, I love that. And, you know, of course, what would be a, a TOS story here without the Klingons? And and what was really interesting, too, is just how different the Klingons here are, you know, and yet, again, I I I like to think of it as the fact that, you know, we're meeting a very early Klingon empire, you know, that feels more akin to kind of the less... put together empire that we even uh you know like you know in in enterprise you know the, the klingon empire felt uh kind of like the proto klingon empire mm-hmm. you know there lots felt like there were more factions and here it, it also felt like that as well and so again i not really much bothered me uh in the things that people might look at as being different i i just thought this was interesting yeah. And it wasn't my favorite part of the story, but it, I found it to at least be interesting. Yeah, it definitely wasn't my favorite part of the story either. But I mean, it was they needed some tension there to, um, I don't know, kind of an impetus for the this world ship and these aliens to find another place to go. It, it the Klingons did feel very different, but yeah, and the the way I kind of thought about it is you know similar to you. This is just kind of one faction, you know, of the Klingons. They have a director. They talk about the Empress, which who knows who that is? You know, like they're not talking about chancellors or anything like that. So, you know, these Klingons could have been anybody, and um, you know, I. It was kind of weird how their story ended, but like at the same time, yeah, I, I didn't have a ton of problems with it, except that it just kind of took away from the uh, first contact mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a great way to put it. And, you know, kind of fun that they ended up having to get Kirk a medal. Yeah. Which, you know, that's always enjoyable. Um, I, You know, one of the last big parts of the story is the vaudeville company led by this character named Lin- Lindy. Uh and also uh we meet Spock's cousin, Steven, who is another emotional seeking Vulcan, uh, a lot like Cybok. Mm-hmm. Uh and so uh, what did what, what did you think of the idea of the fact that there's a vaudeville company in the first place at this time period? And did any of the characters uh really grab your attention or work for you? I like how you put it at the beginning when you talked about kind of the the Bob Hope USO tour. Like, that's really what this felt like. And I feel like it's kind of when you put it that way, it doesn't feel so out of place. You know, you, we, we know it's not something we've ever seen on Star Trek before, but kind of at the end of the day, there's, there's gotta be like entertainers that are touring around. So, why not a kind of an old time, old fashioned vaudeville company? It's almost like having a traveling circus or something like that. I mean, it, it, the fact that they'd put it on, uh, 
you know, such a big starship to to ferry them around between star bases is a little strange, but um, it it didn't. It was a little weird for this story, and I don't really, I, I don't care to read more about vaudeville companies in Star Trek stories anymore. But, <laughs> but you're not hoping for another. Oh, one? No, I mean, you know, like I, I don't know if there's a sequel to this or not, but I, I may not. Be Enterprise, quick to read. the second the adventure. Second adventure, yes. The spinoff, the warp speed vaudeville company. <laughs> um, you know, so like it, it didn't seem out of place for me, except for just out of place in the story. You know, as far as any of the characters, they, I mean, there were quite a few characters in this company, and they were actually, m- most of them were actually flushed out pretty well. You know, I kind of hated Mr. Coxper. I didn't care for the guy with the dogs either, and I can't remember why now, but. You know, Lindy was really the the best character out of all of them because she was kind of the leader of this troop. Um, you know, and she 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 actually kind of seemed like the reluctant leader actually because her dad was the one that kind of started this or you know was the previous manager, but she was actually the one I wanted to know more about because she's you know the magician, the illusionist, but. I feel like there was still something left open, like she might have actually been some kind of actual magician, you know, not just an illusionist, the way that she would pluck an apple out of thin air or whatever, like, you know, or the coins that she was pulling out of Spock's ears or anything like that. Like, those were really fun scenes, but it also kind of left it open, like, are you really just, is that really just sleight of hand, or are you actually some kind of alien that can conjure these things up so it was kind of fun to Mm -hmm. to play around with that character and then you know steven spock's cousin we need more like it's it's just another never mentioned person in spock's family that um and interestingly though this was pre-cybok you know this is before this this book came out before star trek 5 so that's kind of interesting that she kind of had i guess kind of some foresight to think about vulcans who might want to experience emotions and why not have one related to spock yeah no i i i agree with everything you said i think it was a hundred percent a target um you know the vaudeville thing just seemed a little bit strange i uh, the only only thing i could think to myself of you know where this it might make sense is the idea you know Vix becomes a big deal on Deep Space Nine, mm-hmm. and it's because it kind of has this old-fashioned pull to it, you know, this sentimentality that might drag you towards that. Um, but this felt a little bit different because uh, it, it feel it felt like a stretch that this would be something, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's a, there's a difference between it being able to experience something like a holodeck program, uh, like that. And this, where it is, it is the, uh, basis of entertainment, you know, when it comes to people juggling and doing magic tricks and those kind of things that, you know, um, having actual Pegasus style horses, which that was way too far. Um, and, and yet it was, kind of an interesting place where again i almost feel like there is this uh deep space nine picard style look at the other side of life outside of starfleet 
you know, which was interesting. And so I, I can't really fault McIntyre for choosing to use a vaudeville company, but I do think it's one that doesn't really work on the levels that she wants it to most of the time, which is somewhat frustrating. So, you know, um, I'm, I'm really interested to, to hear though, where you're going to kind of come down with your ratings for this. I had a really hard time rating this one actually, because there's a lot of good in this book. And then there's a lot of clunkiness and, you know, things that just maybe don't tie together very well. So, um, I came down at a, a three out of five and, and maybe even kind of pushing just slightly lower than that, but, but not quite so low that I'd go two or two and a half. So it just, um, I, I'm glad I've finally read it. I think that, you know, there's like you mentioned with the Kelvin universe and that there's been stuff that's been pulled from this book before. And I think she did a really good job, but there's just a lot of it that, um, I mean, between the vaudeville company, but it, like I just said, the kind of clunkiness of the transitions and everything kind of made it a little tougher read for me. So how about you? Where'd you end up with this one? I'm actually right there with you with the three out of five, uh, because I think there's more good than bad here. But I think a lot of the stuff comes from some just weird editing choices with the book that don't always work. And I think some story choices that I just don't love or just not always as interested in, but there is a lot that's good about this book, especially one that was written so long ago. And so the fact that, I mean, I can still enjoy it now, I think means that there's, there's enough here for, for people to check out if they've never read it. Are you not entertained? That's kind of what I wanted to say throughout the book. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I don't know. I I I was entertained. Yeah. And so I think that's what we you kind of want from a Star Trek book, but you know, with this I, I can't believe that we've, you know, come to almost the close of another year of literary treks. It's just phenomenal and really excited where we're going to go with our last episode and what's coming up next year. Yeah, absolutely. I've got my uh my copy of David Mack's new book here, Harm's Way, ready to dive into that so we can uh, talk to him about it. I haven't, uh, I've only read the first couple of Vanguard books. So I'm actually kind of interested to see how, how well I understand this without doing that or without knowing all that. And knowing David Mack, I think I'll be just fine. Yes, I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, I can't uh, wait to, to be able to do that. And I've only read the final vanguard book because that was our very first uh interview with dayton ward back in the day mm-hmm. when the show first started and i've just never gotten around to reading the series so i will be fascinated to see uh, how this works but my guess is is you know knowing david and knowing the fact that a lot of new people might be picking up this type of book everything you need to know would be explained so i'm very excited to dive into it he always writes a good yarn. But Casey, if, if people want to catch up with you, where would they find you outside of Literary Treks? You can find me on social media. Uh, my name is at Knitting Trekkie. I'm on Goodreads, Letterboxd, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, and you can also find me o- over um, on another podcast called Mickey's Marvels, where we talk about everything under the Disney umbrella. 
And of course, you can find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 uh, When I'm not doing literary tracks, of course, with the 602 Club, we've got all of the fans we love that are outside of Star Trek here on the network. Uh, and then, of course, you can find me doing The Orb, Warp 5, Saddle Up, and Artificial Tango. And then last but not least, you'll find me over in the Nerd Party Network with a couple of shows. One is called Owl Post, and that is a Harry Potter podcast that I did with Drea Kaufman. Talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series. And then John Mills and I talk about Star Wars over on Aggressive Negotiations. But thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.